Hello, everyone. Uh, you probably have already recognized that this is not Jonah Goldberg. This is Jack Butler, the guy who occasionally pops in for quips and whatnot in the show. Uh, Jonah is not available at the moment. He is, for personal reasons, even more off the grid than his off-the-grid vacation made him. Uh, but lucky for him, I'm here. I have uh, adequate, <laughs> bare minimum podcasting abilities. So I'm going st- to... I'm gonna. See what I can do. Fortunately, I have someone, a very special guest to help me, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, before we get to him, I just want to say, Jonah, actually, Jonah wants me to tell you to sign up for the G file at Reagan35x.com. He wants you to follow this podcast at Jonah Remnant. He wants you to s- subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you subscribe to these things, and to tell your friends about it. And uh, he also, he did not tell you, or he did not tell me to follow me at JackButler4815 on Twitter, but I just told you that. So, so there it is. Um, but we're going to get right down to it, because this is a very special episode of The Remnant, and I mean it. We have an amazing guest, uh, the, the, I believe only the third politician to appear on The Remnant. Um, I'm very excited. I can't believe he agreed to do this. This is really, this is quite the opportunity. We have... Texas Senator Ted Cruz with us in the studio. Hello, Senator. Well, Jack, such an honor to be here. I have been a fan of Jonah, a fan of you, fan of, uh, of, of just all you guys for such a really great time. Oh, wow. It's a long time. Well, I'm, I'm so happy you're here. Um, but the first question I want to ask you, you might not expect this, uh, what do you think of National Review senior political correspondent Jim Garrity? Are you a fan of his? The man is a genius. Um, he is probably, you know, there are many great writers in the whole wide world, but he is the absolute best. Um, I put him right up there with Jesus and the constitution, (laughs) Jesus, constitution, Jim Garrity, gold, silver, bronze right there. Wow. So I, I, I hear that you have a almost perfect spot on Jim Garrity impression. Could you, could you do this for us? I I will try. Uh, People have told me that my Jim Garrity is not as good as Ted Cruz, as when he does me. But we'll, we'll give it a try. So. Okay, <coughs> let's, let's see. So, um, yeah, so do I sound like Jim yet? Or, oh, my uh... God. Wow, this is, this is stunning. <laughs> Holy cow. Oh, man, I, people, were, people were not lying about Already that. Jonah is like, why did I leave these? <laughs> wait, <laughs> how, wait. Did, how did they get into the studio? What are they? <laughs> so can you, can you do me a favor and yeah. just do the rest of the show as Jim Garrity? Like, this is such a good impression. I just want, I, w- I want people to see... The whole dimension of how you can do this performance. Jack, it is tough, but I will try. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, okay. I, I think I can do it. All right. It well, yeah. well, so we're just going to pretend like it's Jim Garrity here uh, <laughs> because, I don't know, I mean, Ted Cruz has never been on this podcast and Jim Garrity is now tied with another politician, Ben Sass, as the most frequent remnant guest. Wow. Congratulations. You have been on this show six it, times. It is a testament to what you guys think of me and also my lack of a life. <laughs> so. Uh Okay. Well, I, I... What are you doing, Jim? Nothing. I'll go over, you know. <laughs> well, we're happy you could be here because I have no... My my ability to rank punditize is wholly dependent on having another person around. Uh, I'm like um, uh, b- uh, the Sundance Kid and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You gotta, you gotta let me move uh, for, me to, for me to shoot well. So thank you for Good. being here because you are the rank pundit in chief, uh, I think. I mean, I... Most of D.C. seems to have taken August off, as usually happens, but you instead have just eaten your pundit Wheaties day after day. And I think your output has – I've always been a fan of yours, but I think lately you've just been – I'm wondering, like, when's he going to stop? When will he stop making all yeah. of these, these, these witty insights? I, I, don't, I, can't see, I can't see an end to it. I don't so know I, how you keep doing it. So I was off on vacation in Portugal a little more than a week ago. Uh-huh. And uh, look, I'm, you know, things at NR have been good. Uh, we are surviving the departure of Jonah from the writing, uh, from, from his non-syndicated column writing there. Um, and things have been really good. And then you go on vacation and you get to see your traffic and it goes, do, 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 you know. So yeah. nobody's reading you when you're on vacation. Uh, so I came back, you know, th- extra appetite. To, all right, I got to come back and, you know, bring my best stuff, get people, remind people that I exist out yes. of my, my deep-rooted insecurities and uh, all that. And there's, there's, you know, there's been a bunch to talk about. There's been, you know, a lot on, a lot of stuff I've, sorry, 
the question of like when people say about hot takes, you know, the idea, this idea that some days you, you, you wake up and you look at the news or, or sports talk hosts look at stuff and they have to have an opinion and you kind of force yourself to, to well, what can I say about this? Haven't had that problem lately. I've, I've seen a lot of stuff where I'm like, this is bull, you know what? Um, or wow, this is real, less, less frequently, this is really good and deserves to be applauded. Uh-huh. And, you know, so. Like your book, perhaps. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I'll have you know, Between Two Scorpions available at Amazon.com. There you uh, go. Which a bunch of, I, you guys were kind enough to have me on and talk about it last time. Quite a few remnant listeners wrote in, said that they uh, liked it. A couple wrote in to say they didn't. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> we have honest listeners. Uh, as I'm sure you know at this mm. point, being one of our most frequent guests. Um, but you know who's another person who has not taken uh, August in D.C. off? That is uh, President Trump, who is working all the time, uh, yeah. in a way, in a sense. And I know there, there's a certain segment of our listeners who, who are – and a certain segment of America that is tired of hearing about Trump one way or the other. So we're just going to get it out of the way mm. first. Uh, and we're going to sort of come at it obliquely even because – there is there is talk. Many people are saying <laughs> that Trump is going to get a primary challenger from the right in the upcoming theoretically upcoming Republican primary. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I think it's today, right, that that uh, Joe Walsh now with the uh, sobriquet woke in front of his name, hmm. uh, replacing. I, I hear I see this on Twitter. I don't know anything that happens on Twitter. I have no idea how much purchase it has in the real world. Who knows? But I see this. I see this title attached to him. So. Joe Walsh, former Illinois House member, uh, lost re-election, what, in 20... 2013. It was, it was, or 2012. Oh, okay. uh, he was He's a one-termer. Oh, so he had one term. Well, you know who else had only one term in the House? Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> um, I just, I hear that statistical. That, 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 that fact has been applied to hopeless candidates the world over. I think it was applied to... And Harry Truman polled badly, too, right? You know, <laughs> right. Bad polls are a sign you're destined for greatness. Yeah, exactly. Uh, correlation, breaking news, correlation is causation. <laughs> um, another fun fact for all of you. But anyway, so I want to – I first want to ask you, in the abstract, do you think – imagine that there's like a perfect Trump challenger that's mm. – uh, a Republican challenger being made – we're going to get to the Democratic challengers later – being made in a laboratory somewhere by, I don't know, some focus group. So, But imagine if that – like if this ideal candidate were made somewhere, would that ideal, abstract, non-existent candidate have any chance of – uh, dethroning Trump from a from getting the Republican nomination again. Yeah, uh, the, the ideal candidate. Now, obviously, yes. there'd be a very wide. You know, people have different ideas of what they are. But if you had, I'll mention this because we'll be talking a bit about him later in this podcast. I assume uh, Cory Gardner type. You know, your your classic conservative who has managed to uh, stand up for conservative values and conservative policies in a state where it's not that easy. Uh, good on camera, not a gaffe machine. I mean, I'm still kind of frustrated that the 2016 campaign. If you look, if you look at the total vote for the 2016 Republican presidential primary, Donald Trump got in the neighborhood about 45 percent of the vote, almost the same as Bernie did in the Democratic right? primary. You know, not a majority. Now, the problem was that other 55 percent was split among 16 other candidates, or I guess you know, Gilmore, Gilmore and his 11, or whatever. It was. <laughs> um, hey, we haven't given up on the idea of Gilmentum on this. Gilmentum, show. yeah. So you know that there was a chunk of the Republican Party who was not. Um, not did not find Trump appealing, did not like the style, did not like the tone, did not like the issues he was emphasizing, et cetera, et cetera. Did not have a taste for the populism, nationalism, and all that stuff. And the problem is it was never a one-on-one traditional conservatism represented by myself, Senator Cruz. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. That was – wow. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I forgot that you weren't yes, uh, Jim you know, Garrity. Yeah. Um, or, you know, but there was always a three-way race at minimum. It was always Cruz, Kasich, and uh, and Trump. And, of course, John Kasich running for president of Ohio uh, <laughs> on the platform that his dad is a mailman. And yeah, he, did you know that? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. But the whole point is that you know, my sense was that you know, maybe it would be close. By that, you know, once Trump was the nominee, a whole bunch of Republicans said, all right, he's the nominee. We got to beat Hillary. I'm jumping on board. And they have. And the attitude was, look, we don't have a better option. He won the nomination fair and square. And we're going to ride this horse as far as he can take us. To look at the options that are out there, William Weld, all right, the for, long ago former governor, Republican governor of Massachusetts, most recently the Libertarian vice presidential nominee just last cycle. Easy to forget. Didn't make a huge impression on people doing that. But uh, uh, Mark Sanford, the former congressman and governor from South Carolina is mentioning and he's mentioned Joe Walsh. Um, 
none of those guys are it. So my suspicion is that you know ninety some percent of Republicans stick with you know stick with Trump. But if they had a significantly better option that was not going to periodically cancel trips to Denmark because he's upset that they won't sell him Greenland, you know, and stuff like that, which, then, yeah, you know. which Jonah is on the record being in favor of. Oh, I, pro, you know, if it was if it was for sale, you know, I, was, I don't know if you noticed by the way, it was I believe it was in. Is it either Belgium or the ne- – which, which is the part that speaks Flemish? There's a French-speaking – Flanders. Flanders, OK. Right, I think. Uh, okay, so there's, there's a group that wants to sell to the United States the French-speaking portion of that, which apparently is very economically run down and you know, all kind of stuff. But they, they're like, oh, we'll sell you that. So, Jack, you realize what this means is that the geopolitical territory free agency period is coming up. And everybody's <laughs> oh, kind of measuring the level of interest in the market and can we swing a trade and all that kind of stuff. So. <laughs> Um, you know, if we could, if, if Greenwood was for, for sale, sure, you know, sure, I'd be interested in that. But there's no indication that it was, and I think Denmark was pretty laughed it off, and then Trump got offended that they laughed it off. So now we're canceling the trip. To, so now we're on we're on the outs with Denmark. You know, nice. Yeah. Who needs them? Yeah. Um, so you don't think you so you what you just indicated to me suggests that uh, the look. If you're in DC, you have this this hyperactive notion that every Trump tweet is being paid to paid mm. attention to by everyone, and it, it is worthy of Talmudic dissection. But maybe that's not the case. Do you, do you? But even by those standards of like, okay, maybe maybe DC people pay too much attention to Trump tweets. Mm. Even by those standards, there's been a, like a series of weird Trump things lately. Even by his standard, yeah, there's like something odd going the on. The chosen there. one stuff. The um, uh, second, the king of the king of the Jews, or whatever it was, uh, but you don't think that that does not matter to a, a, a hypothetical Republican primary challenge. That doesn't. Yeah. None of that has made any. That hasn't been any. That hasn't been categorically weirder enough to make people be like, hmm, you know, this Bill Weld fellow seems yeah, yeah. like a safe bet. Now, again, imagine. Let's imagine in the you know extremely unlikely scenario tomorrow a poll comes out and it has you know Trump. 40, amongst Republican prime, amongst likely Republican primary voters, Trump forty nine, Sanford forty eight, or something like that. Where mm-hmm. all of a sudden it looks like, oh, then all of a sudden I think you would get people to give some, you know, a challenger a second. You know, like it's a self, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, nobody wants to support you because they don't think you have any chance to win, and because you have no chance to win, nobody wants to support you. And there's this, you know, uh, half the Democratic side is trying to figure out this. You know, how do I break out of asterisk level in the polling? Well, uh-huh. nobody thinks you can win, so nobody wants to, you know, like. When the pollster says, who do you want to vote for? You only get one choice. Yep. And you know, the question is, do you, maybe you like Julian Castro. Maybe you really like uh, – well, nobody likes Kirsten Gillibrand. <laughs> wow. That's, that's rough for one of your own colleagues. Kirsten Gillibrand? Yeah, in the, in the Senate. Oh, oh, that's right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, nobody likes her. <laughs> and, and it's coming from me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very self-deprecating, Senator. Anyway, sorry to sorry to keep making you be yourself again. <laughs> be be Jim again for us. All right. No, so you know some of this is a vicious cycle. Yeah, there's also like there's. I also think by the way, there's a the psychological factor of kind of the sunken cost theory. Yep. That I have voted for. You know, I, I chose to vote for Trump in 2016, admitting that he is not good, admitting that he is not just a good, not a good president, not a good human being. You know, admitting that he, admitting that that was a mistake. It's a really big deal. Yeah. People, people are not inclined to do that. And maybe I don't know if you want to see this as a segue for Joe Walsh, who overtly who, who voted for Trump, overtly supported Trump in in 2016. And I, I look back looking through his tweets and stuff. Well into 2017. Yeah. Um, Very like not just kind of uh, wishy washy support. Like, yeah. I will grab a musket if you lose support. Right. Literally, but that's not Jack exaggerating. This is one of the things he tweeted back then. Um, I mean, he was making fun of Mika Brzezinski on on MSNBC. Uh, he one point he said, you know, as a Trump supporter, I try not to pay too much attention to what he says. Hmm. Uh, you know, this kind of <laughs> hand waving that what he says doesn't matter and stuff like that. You know, if you if you if Joe Walsh were here, I, I would say there's a there's a great deal I agree with him in terms of policy, particularly on economics. And he was beating the drum for you know reducing spending. Um, he supported the balanced budget amendment, which my colleague uh, uh, Kevin Williamson said we should be, you know, it's the equivalent of saying we can asteroid mine our way out of this problem. You know, like hey, don't don't knock on asteroid mining until you tried it. I it, I won't. Until <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, or you know, there's a lot of minerals out there. Yeah. Um, and plus, we don't we don't want to get smod angry. You know, Joe Joe uh, Walsh. However, his political persona going back from when he was running for the house, when he was in the house. 
uh, when he was running against Tammy Duckworth, and he said she kept talking, going, all she ever talked about was her war injuries. You know, uh, but now he's very upset about what Trump said about McCain. Um, this this was a guy who was extremely Trumpy in his persona from about 2010 to 2017. He has said he regrets his tone and his comments. He regrets saying that Obama was a Muslim. He regrets saying that Obama didn't love this country, all this kind of stuff. And I'm glad. I, I, I'm glad that he realizes the error of his ways and he wants to have a more polite, more respectful uh, political discourse. And maybe for about a year he's done it. You don't get to be president because, you know, great, thank you. But also, by the way, like he has to kind of observe. He says for him, I think it looks like the, the, the breaking point was Trump's press conference with Putin in Helsinki where Putin's like, I did nothing to interfere with the election and not – Well, when did Putin show up? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you'll notice my impression of Putin is exactly the same as my impression of Count Dracula. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Or the Count from Sesame Street. <laughs> uh, you know, that that was the breaking point. Okay, but it's not like, you know, Trump's squishiness on Putin and Kim Jong-un and everybody else was came out of nowhere in mm-hmm. mid-2018. It's not, you know, he's the exact same guy he is now that he was in 2017 and 2016 and since he went down the escalator and for pretty much most of his adult life. So the idea of he or, or Anthony Scaramucci, or Scaramucci, to get another example of a guy who's suddenly like, Oh my goodness! Trump is a racial is a racial arsonist, as as Joe Wall said. Oh, you're just noticing this now? Oh, thank. Well, you know, to quote the the brilliant philosopher John McClain, uh, "Welcome to the party, pal." You know, this wow. When did Bruce Willis show? Uh, they, yeah. <laughs> People get a good sense of how my mind works, but <laughs> yeah, there's. Um... Yeah, there. The each of these each of these people, as you've made the case, is a sort of flawed, um, flawed standard bearer for this this hypothetic this hypothetically maybe plausible scenario. Um, the, the last thing that I want to dwell on that's specifically Trumpy, I think we probably asked you this last time because it's an inev- inevitable question. If you're on, and if you're on, assuming you're on before the mm-hmm. 2020 election, which I'm sure you will be, but you'll be asked it again. All things being equal right now, uh, does Trump win in 2020 or not? Let's say there's no recession, yeah. despite the intense yeah. <laughs> enthusiasm among the occasional left. dark clouds. Yeah, or, well, and the like, the desire for one on some parts of the left, yeah. which is its own problem. Yeah, um, I think I'll be able to tell you. I'll I'll feel more confident in a prediction when I know who the Democratic nominee is going to be. Okay. And I feel like if it's Joe Biden, then I think Joe Biden has a good chance of winning. Yeah. Um, I think if the if the sorry, if the Democratic message is quote unquote a return to normalcy. Or aren't you tired of this? Then I think they win. If the Democratic message is it's time for a Bolshevik revolution, <laughs> then I think a whole bunch of people, and I'm kind of square in that category of like, look, I can't, you know, I don't like this, but I can live with this status quo. When you start, you know, God, you know, God forbid you get a, you know, downright far left president and a Democratic majority and they nuke the filibuster and a Democratic House majority. Well, then all of a sudden, all this stuff really is on the table, the Green New Deal and uh, eliminating all private health insurance. And we're going to, you know, basically end immigration enforcement, you know, de facto open borders. And we're going to give everybody who comes here free education and free, you know, like there's a whole bunch of ideas that barely work in theory that they want to enact into reality. And as much as I can't stand Trump, I don't like that anymore. And in fact, I think I probably like that even less. Mm-hmm. Um, with Trump, at least there's a chance of some of the stuff that I like getting to his desk and him signing it into law. For all the flaws of Trump and, you know, for, for everybody, you know, I, again, listeners to this podcast probably are not diehard Trump fans who are like, oh, that darn Garrity, you know, <laughs> darn Jonah. They may know. be like that for other reasons. I mean, are there people who anger listen for to, to Jonah to this or? Well, if there are, this podcast is dedicated to them. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> Trump has given us a whole bunch of good judges and that may end up being the single most significant check on the growth of government and this basically, I would argue, anti-constitutional, not merely unconstitutional, this, this attitude amongst – off very much the Twitter left, and I think really a good chunk of the, the Democratic Party, which is that, well, if the idea we like violates the Constitution, well, then never mind Constitution. You know, I, we're just going to put more more judges on the Supreme Court. We're going to eliminate the Electoral College. Uh, the Second Amendment is optional. Uh, we're going to put restrictions. We're going to have. We're going to. You know, we like in instituting a system where people get really severely punished for expressing orthodox ideas, and that's not a violation of the First Amendment in any way, shape, or form. You know, this is this is the men- they have mentality they have there, and that's you know, Trump is bad. All that's worse in my book. Okay, well then, since you can only make this prediction when you know who the Democratic nominee uh, is, let's let's talk about them sure. now, because yeah. um, there's lots to talk about. Uh, in fact, there's a semi-breaking news 
story that <laughs> I don't know. It, don't oversell it. Fractured news, like strained news, hairline fractured news. Oh, yeah. That um, what's his name? Jay Inslee, Washington governor, has dropped out, and this is on the heels of John Hickenlooper, by far the best name. I was still. My my hopes for a Hickenlooper or Klobuchar ticket are now, are now dashed. Sadly, um, uh, he is he dropped out of the presidential race last week, and he is now announcing a, a run for Colorado Senate against the aforementioned Cory Gardner. Um, so, I guess the first thing to ask is, well, I want to talk about. I mean, we can we can play silly um, games about who's going to win or who's going to not win, but I want to I want to step back for a second and talk about the broader cultural problem of not just the democratic nomination system but the presidential nomination system but like that system as a whole because you have in this cycle it seemed pretty transparent that a lot of the democrats were running and then 2016 it was pretty transparent among the republicans that these people were just running to get a book deal to get on tv more to get themselves more well known in the wake in the in advance of some other uh, presidential run and you've written that um, John Hickenlooper is a good example of, of at least one of these phenomena in terms of now he's now he's become more prominent. He is like a media celebrity. Now he can run for Senate. Well, he could have run for Senate before. But yes, yeah. he and could in fact, have. Yeah. So, yeah. And by the way, I think you can say this was actually happening on both sides a couple of years ago because you've already forgotten the amazing Democratic candidacy of Lincoln Chafee. Oh, right. Uh, who was going to convert America to the metric system. <laughs> I tell you, you give that guy a centimeter, he'll take a kilometer. Um <laughs> You know, Jim Webb, uh, who had, you know, kind of been, you know, was past his prime. Uh, Martin O'Malley, uh, promising to oh, do... Oh, yeah, to, I vaguely remember right? him. Promising to do to America what he did to Baltimore. Um, <laughs> you know, like, like there were a bunch of guys where you're like, really? You're, you're running for president? You know, kind of this this uh, also-ran status. Uh, and then a couple of years earlier, I think you could say, in the, the 2012 race, it was, you know, Mitt Romney and the Seven Dwarfs. I mean, okay, Newt Gingrich was a real candidate. Um, you know, Herman Cain? Remember that weird little thing with his his, you know... Raising the eyebrow, a video and stuff. Here's the thing: if 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 you want to run for president, do stuff with your life so that when you announce you're running for president, that's not the first time most Americans are hearing of you. Mm-hmm. I know that there. I know that every senator looks in the mirror and sees a, a president a president looking back at them. You probably have you know every House member has the same thing. Every governor has the same thing. And I guess the nicest thing I can say about John uh, uh, Hickenlooper is. In the 1990s, maybe even the 2000s, to have the resume he had, two terms as governor, as uh, mayor of Denver, two terms as governor in a you know purple to blue state, that's the type of resume that would get you serious look in a, in a you know, presidential campaign. Yeah. We're in a different era now. Um, and I think, you know, it's, he could be he, – he may be able to argue that he's the Bobby Jindal of this cycle in that, hey, I had a pretty good record as governor. Nobody paid any attention to it in part because I was one of 24 candidates. Uh, or 25 or 26, depending on how you count, you know, the Mike Gravels of the world. <laughs> um, by the way, just breaking news, Mike Gravel also dropped out. Uh, also breaking news, Mike Gravel was running for president. Also, probably the most surprising bit of breaking news, Mike Gravel's still alive. Um, <laughs> and an even more surprising bit of news, uh, uh, Mike, quote-unquote, Mike Gravel tried to uh, buy alcohol at a, at a liquor store, and uh, he was... Uh, suddenly knocked over and revealed to be three children stacked on top of each other. And those were the people running his Twitter account. Yes. You know, it was, it was like he was an 81-year-old candidate and like an 18-year-old running his Twitter account. And it was Yeah, several, bizarre. several like Ivy League. It was a George Burns body-switching, you know, age-switching <laughs> right. movie. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I actually think this is one of the really big problems in our country right now. And I know that people are like, Jim, how can you possibly? No, I... Look, I think as I mentioned earlier, I think one reason Trump won is because there were sixteen other Democrat, uh, sixteen other Republicans running in that race. I think that the people who do this are not sufficiently "quote unquote" like it used to be. Well, you wouldn't run for president because if you run and you get one percent, it's embarrassing. Uh huh. We have given, we have created a whole. You know, what's that line from Don Henley? Uh, the land of opportunity had bred a whole, had a whole new breed of men without souls. Oh, what right? what song is that from? Uh, the Garden of Allah. Oh, uh, yeah. So, you know, so, I, so, but it was this idea that we now have a whole bunch of candidates who are really shameless, yeah, who don't care if they're getting one percent, who don't care if they're on the debate and people don't remember them, who don't care if they can't meet that threshold of one percent to you know participate in the DNC debate, 
who will complain that the DNC debate of you need 50,000 donors and 1% in a poll is too high and exclusionary. Yeah. Look, if you can't, what do you think? The, being president of the United States is going to get easier after that? What do you think? This job is part-time? Suck it up, get the supporters. If you can't, you shouldn't be running. Wow. I never, I've never seen you oh angry God. with Jonah I, before. Yeah. Sir, well, like... Um, or with Jonah in the room, rather. Yeah, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm free, Jack. You know? <laughs> um, no, but like, you know, people say, Jim, are you just mad because you have to write about these people? A little, <laughs> you know this. But you, know, but you do I, such a great job of it. I learned so many fun facts about uh, oh, Pete, Buttig- Pete Buttigieg's like eighth grade uh, essay contest. Yeah, well, you know the the you know if you're mayor of South Bend, and, and you know I, I'm, we could argue that that in the as, as far as mayors of South Bend go, Pete Buttigieg is. <laughs> One of the better ones. You know. <laughs> Maybe even by mayors of Indiana go. He's he's in that top tier. <laughs> yeah. You shouldn't be running for president. No, by the way, you're 38, right? You know, I one, and people who are guessing, I'm, I just turned 44 last month. You, I don't want presidents who are younger than me. <laughs> right? That's problem number one. Problem number two is, again, what have you done? You know, he's been a pretty good mayor. Okay, run, show me something else you can do with your life. He's, he served in the military. You know, thank you for your service. God bless him. Um, actually, as far as things go, each one of these debates, by the way, I would say Boudet Edge, he comes prepared. And a lot of those candidates you tell you, – you can't you know, because often there will be this, you know, trying to get their, their, you know, uh, their, their catchphrase in and there's kind of this desperate tone and they're trying to talk it over there you know, and stuff. Yeah. And then they turn to you know, uh, Mayor Boudet Edge. What are you, and instantly Mayor Boudet Edge turns into the McKinsey presentation. Yeah, right. You can almost That's see the charts is. coming out and it's like, you know, at Boudet Edge Associates, we believe that your <laughs> country's problem – your company's problem can actually be an opportunity. Exactly. You know, here's my five point plan, and it's <laughs> he's very polished. He's very he knows what he's, he's really impressive. He's just imagining the debate as a series of elevators that he's stuck. Got to make the pitch in yeah. right in two minutes. Um, and you know maybe he's got a really bright future in American politics. I think it is worth noting that apparently at Harvard, uh, in their club for politics, which is you know basically just a petri dish of like insanely ambitious aspiring politicians. Yes. He stood out as the ambitious one. <laughs> um and you know so the perfect resume, Harvard, then Oxford, then McKinsey, you know. <sighs> Pete Buttigieg is the young man that your mom and dad are like I wish we could be a little more like him. <laughs> Gee, thanks. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah, there's look I I I know that no one no one really cares about my opinions. But it just seems to me an obvious fact that this is a real, a real problem with the way our, our presidential nominating system works, and it's not going to get any better until what? How did you put it? People are punished well, for, know, for for having failing presidential yeah. runs. We have to inflict pain. And yes. Before anybody thinks, you know, oh my God, Jim's a maniac who's threatening to, you know, no. I mean, like it's got to be a thing where you don't want to run unless you think you have a serious chance to win. Yep. Uh, and you're not running for president because you either want to run for another office, like you know Hickenlooper is now running for Senate, uh, or you're running for uh, you, you, you want to get as you said, get a book deal. I mean, I think a big problem where where a lot of this came from is Mike Huckabee ran in 2008, had, had a little while he was front runner, and he won Iowa. You know, there, there was an impressive guy, impress, impressive run for a guy most people hadn't heard of much. Uh, didn't win, obviously. McCain won the nomination, and then he got the weekend gig on Fox News, uh-huh. and all of a sudden that turned him into a you know not just a this governor down in this state who some people had heard of and most people hadn't. Now he's a political celebrity and he's playing his guitar on there. You know, bass guitar. Bass guitar. Pardon. He, you know, people – he was really good as a Fox News you know, weekend host and then he ran again. And then, you know, <laughs> did he run, He didn't run in 2016. Did yeah, he did. He did? Really? There were 15 candidates who had plans to deal with Social Security, Medicaid and Medicare. Oh, Trump right. and he were the two who did not. Yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. that now. Yeah. Uh, did he get to keep his show while he was running? No. no that's okay. the other – you know – so like, the sneaking suspicion is that people want to run for off as a presidential campaign because they think at the end of the process there's a contract from MSNBC or maybe uh-huh. CNN or more likely Fox News or you know one of the other networks or something. If not that, then a book deal. If not that, then you know some institute for American Inst- I shouldn't talk about like that way. The American Enterprise Institute, you know, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me tell you, political think tanks are just the worst. You know, um, get out. Yeah, you know, Sanders ran. And, you know, look, you can run and you can you can run and you can win the presidency. Uh, if you run and you really exceed expectations, all of a sudden you get catapulted into a much bigger deal in the political uh-huh. scene. Bernie Sanders is probably the best example of that in 2016. He created the Sanders Institute up in Vermont, um, which, oh, by the way, had Tulsi Gabbard as a uh, as one of its. Uh, I don't know, it was one of the founding members, one of the board. I don't know. She, she and he were connected in that way. 
And I just feel like, look, if you want to run for you know, the, the presidential campaign should be limited to people who actually want to be president uh-huh. uh, and who aren't seeing this as a stepping stone to further their careers as celebrities. Yeah, the the other the, the I don't know if this is really a rejoinder because I don't think you disagree with me here. Uh, but your your National Review colleague uh, Charles Cook uh, is he's made this case in multiple venues that the. The, there, there's an additional problem of the presidency. People who some of the people who actually truly want the presidency have this monarchical notion of of its power. Yeah. I think Joe Biden, whom we'll get to in a minute, is promising to heal our souls. No, no, not there's that, but also he's going to cure cancer. Oh, right, and that pissed me off. I hope I can use that word in this. In this uh, yeah, I mean, okay. we have we you you may be aware of the profanity issue we had in one of our most recent episodes, but I think that's an acceptable. Okay. One. Um, because yeah, and by the way, this is parts because I know people who are fighting cancer, and it's ugly as sin. It it is as bad as it gets, and so for Joe Biden, and again, I know Joe Biden himself has fought cancer. I know Joe Biden has lost his son to cancer, right? I know he really wants to cure cancer, and and that's you know on that Joe Biden and I are totally together on this. You're both anti-cancer. Yeah, you know. Um, but for him to stand up there in front of a stage and promise that we're going to cure, first of all, there's like a hundred and some different kinds of cancer, right? We have treatments for a whole bunch of them. Some treatments work very well. Some treatments don't. Cancer uh, inside a cancer cell, they, they, they went into a tumor, took out four different samples and found out that the cells were different in four different places. Cancer is always changing. It's always evolving. So you find a treatment that kills against one type. It doesn't necessarily kill another type of cancer. That's what makes curing cancer so hard. Uh-huh. None of this enters the Joe Biden promise. None of the, you know, like it, it's just it, you might as well promise people I will never you'll never have a rainy day. <laughs> you know, and it's just this, you know. I, I'm, I'm, I was infuriated with I alone can fix it, yeah. Trump. I was infuriated with, you know, this is the moment when the planet began to heal and the uh, uh, we healed the sick. And, you know, all kind of, I didn't like the Obama Messiah crap. Were you, know. were you angered by Elizabeth Warren's, uh, like, semi-diluted rejoinder to John Delaney? Uh, oh, why uh, run for president? Yeah, yeah, why run for president if you're not going to do these gigantic yeah. things? Well, go back and check John Delaney's list of what he wanted. Yeah, to do. it was pretty like it was, standard liberal, like Democratic Party wish. If they, if he, if yeah. they, I think you made big this infrastructure point. bill. Yeah, big infrastructure bill. Uh, reform the healthcare system so that everybody is covered. It, it was not, you know, yeah, like if they, if all those things have been accomplished, the people, the Democratic voters would be pretty happy. Be very good. American people, wow. He got a big infrastructure bill done. Yeah. Everybody has health insurance. We, you know, like, well, this was a great presidency. And Elizabeth Warren is like, God, so timid. <laughs> Come on. Where's your big ticket yeah. ideas? Uh, yeah. There's, so there's that. That's the other problem that if if the presidential nomination is, system is to get fixed, we probably also have to let some air out of the modern presidency a little bit. Um, well, yeah, I, I think it was Ben Carson who ran in 2016. He said he was running to change America's culture. Oh, all right. And let me let like, you find the culture switch. Well, I mean, here's the, you know, like, is the president a cultural figure? Absolutely and indisputably. That you know, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, you know, I think you can see the ramifications of Trump being, you know, uh, it's Trump is having, I think, a significant impact on our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, I, I'd like, first of all, I'd hope you have some policy ideas too to go with that. <laughs> That'd be and nice. Two, I, you know, as you said, there's no switch. You know, could, if we had, um, I don't know who the perfect. Uh, uh, the man of the most perfect moral character in the Oval Office. Would that improve America's culture? Sure. But it's not – he's only one guy and I don't think he necessarily – you know, or, or she would uh, you know, necessarily have the ability to change what's coming out of Hollywood. I don't think you'd necessarily so – the idea of changing you know, popular culture, what's being in music and all that kind of stuff. Um, our culture of uh, mating, finding partners, staying with partners, leaving partners, raising families, all that stuff, well beyond the realm of the president. You know, like wh- why is America the way it is? Well, a lot of it's the choices Americans make. And no leader can fix that. It's up to us to change the decisions we make. And, you know, much easier said than done. Look at yourself and make the change. That's what a now – are we still allowed to – so – Go oh, quoting Michael Jackson. I think I think this. No, is, Batman said that. Didn't you see Lego Batman? Oh right, Lego right. Batman said that. I saw that on a plane, an international flight in June, and that was a good. That was a good flight movie. It was. Um, yeah. So, uh, but oh, you're you're you're. Um, I should preface. I have kids. I saw it in the theaters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's fine. It's a, it's a very good. They they had the bat shark repellent in it. That was hilarious. Yes. Yeah. That was a real. That was a nice throwback to the, the best scene in any Batman. 
uh, <laughs> cinematic adaptation ever. Right. That shark repellent. With your assessment, Christopher Nolan saying, that's what I forgot. <laughs> well, he stole the trying to get rid of a bomb thing from the Batman 66 movie. Mm, yeah. Based for The Dark Knight Rises. So some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. We all feel that way sometimes. But yeah, so you're you're to get back to Biden a little bit. Mm. Um, you're you're you have a, you had a rant about this Biden's promise to cure cancer. I think in the corner, and I I can't remember. This must have been how I learned that John Kerry uh, made a similar promise yep. back when I was uh, like one year old. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I was, oh my god! Right, yeah. I was I was 11 in 2004. I was I was sort of conscious of of what was going on. Not to make you. Not to make you. I think that makes you feel. A Sorry, I just got to take my heart pills over here. <laughs> um, so I was following it close. I, I knew enough to know in my conservative family that I didn't like John Kerry, but I did not know at the time. I did not realize at the time that he had promised to um, make yeah. the paralytic walk again. Okay, it was actually John Edwards. Oh, John Edwards. Um, yeah. not I mean, like, it's not like Kerry said. Oh, the no, other no. John. Yeah, don't say. It's not like John Kerry jumped up and said, "Oh no, don't make that promise." <laughs> right. Um, I believe you know when when John Kerry is president, Christopher Reeve is going to rise and walk out of that chair. Oh, okay, very you know ba- revival preacher you know kind yeah, of tone yeah. to it. Um, <laughs> and it was over stem cell research. Uh, I went back and I checked. You know, remember stem cell research was you know over sorry embryonic stem cell research. Yeah, yeah. because stuff from uh, the fluids and spinal fluid like there has been progress. It has not been the miracle cure that everybody was saying it was going to be about yep. fifteen years ago. Uh, and there was a whole idea that George W. Bush was, you know, keeping cure, keeping cures out of the hands of patients because of his bioethics uh, review board and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he, you know, he allowed the existing lines of stem cells to continue research. He didn't want to, but he didn't want to go into new ones. Um, turns out embryonic stem cell research was overstated. Now they've had great stuff with the embryonic fluid and the stuff from. This is where we're getting outside of the area of how much I remember. But anyway, <laughs> and the whole point is that if you're, you're – presidents can't heal sick people. Presidents cannot make their, the, them rise and walk. And it's just so gosh darn – see, I'm watching my language. Thank you. Uh, gosh darn demagogic. It's so – you know, like you'd like to think the public would be would, – would, like when somebody said that, they'd say, you can't promise that. <laughs> it is exploitational and manipulative to suggest that you did. Get off – this is where you need like rotten fruit at a, uh, at, a <laughs> at a rally and you see people throwing it and stuff. Didn't happen. Um, I don't think you paid that much of a price for it. Well, karmically perhaps. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there, there was no indication that the American people had a significant problem with a presidential candidate promising that they promising medical cures if elected. Yes, which because it's like if you gee, you know, if you're sitting Biden, if you're sitting on the cure for cancer, you probably should share it now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah don't don't know. This is it reminds me of all those um, those uh, people who come out with books who like I think this was with the case with Comey's book. He was uh, when he was on the book tour, he was sort of making he was going to get more sales if he could create this impression that the book had some sort of bombshell in it. But at yeah. that point, he had already testified several times before Congress. So it's like, if you're sitting on something, can you, <laughs> can you just not? Can you t- tell us now? Here's what I forgot to tell Congress. <laughs> By the way, here's the ch- here's the, here's the deleted, yeah. the redacted version of my remarks. I just remembered. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, but wait, now we're back to we're actually back to Biden, no. uh, who is despite this like all of these changes in the uh, nominating system, all of these new figures who uh, have these new strategies for trying to catch fire and whatnot, not literally catch fire, speaking of Michael Jackson. Uh, is that too soon? I don't know. Uh, I guess we'll find out. Um, whereas Joe Biden, like, you look at the presidential nominating system since, like, 1968, and someone like Joe Biden would get through it as nominee. Mm-hmm. You Like, a former vice president, longtime senator, well-known nationally. It's his turn. Yeah, exactly. But... Yeah. And that seems to be, I mean, as of right now, this seems to be what people are, uh, or what Democratic voters kind of want. They, they're like, okay, sure, you can be Trump. Let's have it. Let's, let's have you. Why not? Yeah. And that seems to be what he's saying. He's like, I'm just going to ignore this whole primary that's happening. Just assume that I win everything and go straight to the general. First, so first question is, can that strategy work? Second question is, more generally, does Biden end up the nominee or will someone rise up to, to, uh, the moment that he is truly exposed as having a weakness, will that be like the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I can't think of it. Exposed but like, like a thing that's getting exposed. Exactly. Well, that so have at it. What yeah. do you think? Um, straight answer is you know yeah I think he can. I think he's among those. He, he is greatly benefiting from having 24 or so Democratic candidates on the other side because have you ever gone to like a grocery store in a foreign country or something? Yeah. And all of a sudden, or, or a grocery store you're not used to, and all of a sudden you go to the cereal aisle. 
and there's like a million kinds of cereal and you don't recognize any of them. Uh-huh. And they're all, you know, you're like, eh. And then at the end of the aisle, you see Cheerios. Yay, Cheerios. You know? Okay, I know Cheerios. I like Cheerios. Is it Cheerios your favorite? Eh, it's not your absolute, but you've always liked it. Okay, fine. You know, Joe Biden is Cheerios. <laughs> you know what you're getting with him. He's familiar. You've been eating Cheerios your whole life. You've been listening to Joe Biden all your life. He's going to make some gaffes. He's going to say uh-huh. some things that sound wacky. He's going to say some things that sound a little cringe-inducing or offensive. He's going to say some things that just make you laugh. Um, you know, is he a centrist? Well, no. He's been around politics long enough that he has a record that looks conservative by comparison of the angry Twitter left of today. Uh-huh. But he's never been a centrist. You know, he's at the center of where the Democratic Party is. Yes. And, you know, he will, and so that's why, you know, the idea that, oh, if you elect Biden, you know, nothing too bad will happen. Well, Biden's going to, you know, Biden is not, Biden is not in the business of fighting his own party. Occasionally. But he's, this is not, you know, he's not he's not been a Joe Lieberman going to the mattresses over the Iraq war and, you know, willing to lose a primary over it or anything like that. Joe Biden wants to build consensus. And if the you know, building consensus requires making some concessions to the left, he'll do it. Now, he's not interested in courting the left, as you said. And the ad that he released earlier this week, it's a straight up general election ad other than one brief reference in the beginning where he talks about he's polling the best against Trump, which is basically the, the message to Democrats is, look – I can win. Stick with me. Don't risk the. You know, we, we don't know how Kamala Harris is going to do. We don't know how Cory Booker or uh, you know, we, we saw how Bernie's going to do. And by the way, I do think you know Trump beats Bernie. Um, I think uh, Elizabeth Warren is probably the candidate who reminds people the most of Hillary Clinton. And I think Trump can run the Hillary Clinton playbook against Elizabeth Warren, and it probably would succeed. Joe Biden's got a you know pretty. And the, the other good news for Joe Biden is, let's face it, he had a really lousy first debate. Kamala Harris came at him and just cleaned his clock, right? Second one, a little bit better. You know, he was prepared for it. He had some good counter strikes. He, you know, not a great debate, I don't think. But, you know, he, he tailed his own. And he's still leading. So he's shown that he can have a bad night and then a not-so-great night. And he's still ahead. And in the meantime, uh, at least according to the CNN poll came out this week, Kamala Harris just collapsed. Yeah. Um, and you could you know, I think it's because Tulsi Gabbard gutted her like a fish in that last <laughs> debate, you know, hitting like five things about her record as prosecutor. And that darn record always goes well, yeah. away. Harrison's response was, I have always stood for you know, criminal justice reform. And then and then pivots to other issues. She didn't <laughs> respond to any of those five. So I went back and checked. Tulsi Gabbard did her homework. Every one of those. There, there was no exaggeration. There was no stretching or taking things out of context. No, she picked five examples that made Kamala Harris look like a terrible uh, prosecutor, uh, having some guy on death row and then blocking the evidence to help uh, exonerate him and stuff like that, you know. I think that – and the, the lesson of the, the second debate was Kamala Harris is really tough when she's going after somebody else. She has no ability to defend her own record. And I think, you know, most – I think a lot of Democrats looked at that and said, well, that's not a good trait to have when you're going up against Trump if you uh-huh. can't defend your record. Yeah. Um, dude, so do you think the, – the, the, the other potential weakness of Biden, which you sort of alluded to, mm. is that uh, he has – he has gaffes. Uh, <laughs> Occasionally, every once in a while. Malarkey. <laughs> yeah, like recently, he. I, th- I think this was this one was slightly more forgivable because in the full context of, of his remarks, it was clearly just a like uh, one one second misspe- uh, misspeaking when he uh, said that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, RFK were killed in the seventies, yeah. late seventies. He said, yeah. yeah. Uh, but there's been more serious things, like both he and Trump referring got- to Theresa May as uh, Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher. <laughs> You know, just just a little. He, he doesn't understand like where things come from in England because he has, he like he's ne- has an attribution <laughs> problem. Doesn't like giving the right. That is a good Neil Kinnock, you know, throwback joke. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. know. I know my eighties British history. Excellent. Spitting image was good for that. And uh, yes, minister. Um, look, Joe Biden's getting up there in years, and if if he were your grandpa, you'd be a little nervous. You'd be a little worried about him these days. Uh huh. Um, now again. If you're in front of cameras and you're being interviewed and you're doing giving speeches all day, stuff's going to come out wrong. I'm sure if if I you know that old that old joke Freudian slip you you mean one thing and you say a mother. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I know that joke. You know the the thing your words will come out wrong. That by itself. Now when it happens over and over again, people will start to wonder about it. And the other thing also I notice is that Biden is not keep so. I made a reference to Mark Sanford earlier in this podcast. When Mark Sanford won back his house race up against uh, – it was the sister of Stephen Colbert. Yeah, um, Katie something. Yeah. 
Uh, no, Katie Arrington is who we lost to in oh. the most recent one. Uh, this was back in like 2011 or so. Is it, you know, so this is, where, this is where my parents live. So this is a district that I know pretty darn well uh, off Hilton Head. Uh, Sanford just out hustled her. He was doing 10 events a day. And, you know, they'd pull up to a grocery store, do a meet and greet, handshake, you know. This is after he'd had his infamous Appalachian Trail thing. And so – but he was there for anybody to ask questions about it or give him grief about it. And the funny thing is, is that once he's there in front of you, you don't want to, you know, hey, you weird – you know, like everybody's just kind of like, you know, like you don't talk about it. And yep. He was flandering. She was doing one tightly scripted, no questions from reporters event a day. And look, it's a Republican-leaning district, but, uh, you know, Sanford won. You know, Trump, for all of his flaws, and he's got considerable flaws, had a pretty vigorous schedule, particularly as a 2016 campaign. They, they were, you know, flying him around everywhere, doing his big rallies. His rallies go long. You know, he yeah. just gets up there and has a good time. Very high energy. Yeah. You know, as opposed to Jeb. <laughs> um, whereas Hillary Clinton was keeping that very, you know, tightly scripted, we're doing, this, you know, hustling counts. And you kind of wonder, look, probably there are a few things in life more exhausting than running for president. And is Joe Biden going to be able to keep up with this? Is he, you know, it, does does fatigue become a factor after a while? You got to wonder about that. Uh, well, as long as he actually goes to Wisconsin. Ah, there you go. Yes, it helps. Uh, yeah, that that would be – well, that, that he will – unless he – what, what did Woody Allen say? 90 percent of the vote in Wisconsin is showing up? Yeah, right, right. But now, now that it, he will at least be there once because the DNC is going to be there. Yeah. So – Beer and brats. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So – but – so I – I think that the Biden gaffes, he has this, especially the durability in the polls that he's shown, it could uh, demonstrate that he has, there's a certain priced, pricing in of his gaff ability. I think, and it's yeah. similar to how Trump's is priced in. Yeah. The people who are on the Biden bandwagon aren't really looking for an excuse to get off. The, the only thing that's really going to make, here's, you know, look, this audience will not have a hard time understanding this. Some audiences I speak to do. For the Democratic, for a lot of Democrats, Trump, you know, uh, Jonathan Chait, as I spit, um, said shortly after Trump's election that it was the worst thing that had ever happened in his lifetime. Hmm. So, the worst thing that ever happened in the United States in his lifetime. He's old enough to have been around 9-11. He's around to have been, you know, for, for a whole you know, Vietnam, a whole bunch of bad stuff has happened in, the li- in that lifetime. But this is really how they see it. They really see Trump's election as the equivalent of a natural disaster, the equivalent of a terrorist attack. For a long time, they believed it was Russia putting their guy in charge. You know, there was this belief. This is the worst possible thing. So that has to be stopped at all costs. So when Biden says, look, I may not give you everything you want on policy. I'm at, you know, I don't dot all the I's. I don't cross all the T's. I got my own flaws. But I can beat them and I can end this long national nightmare. There are a whole bunch of Democrats who say, sign me up. Yeah. They're looking for the safest bet they can. And I think he has a fairly strong argument out of name recognition, out of the association with Obama, out of the, you know, kind of wacky, you know, the, the other metaphor I keep using is that Joe Biden running as top of the ticket is the wacky neighbor on the sitcom getting his own spinoff show. Yeah, yeah, right. You know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's a funny, the Biden show. Yeah. I'd watch that. Oh, that Joe. <laughs> what would he, is, is, is his catchphrase just malarkey? Malarkey! Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so... The, the last thing I think I want to sort of broadly discuss is something that both Biden and Trump are examples of. And this is something that you wrote about in National Review. I don't know. I feel like this this article, I don't know what kind of traffic it got for you, but I think it was underappreciated, even if it was like National Review's most popular article. This, I think the title was the, 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 These Swing- Swinging 70s-somethings. Yeah. Yes, the, sing- the Swinging 70s. Yeah, right. and we, the, you made the point that this is one of these things that if you, you don't notice it, until you sort of look at it and then you're like, wow, how did I not see this before? Namely, that almost all of the most dominant figures in our political life right now are 70-somethings. Yeah. That's kind of weird. It is weird. And I was I was just about to go off on vacation. It was one of the last things that I wrote. But I, I'd come across um, – McConnell had just had his health issue and McConnell is 77. Whoa. He, right? I mean, he seemed to – you figure he might be in his late 60s, early 70s. Uh-huh. You know, you know, uh, by the way, hoping you know, McConnell's – in good health and everything's fine. He certainly seems to be, you know, uh, when he's not having this particular issue, doing okay. But, uh, man, 77. Um, Trump is, I don't know, off the top, he's somewhere in his mid-70s. 73. 73, thank he, you. He, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton were all born in the summer of 46. Wow. Uh, Trump in June. Wow. Bush in July, yeah. Bill in August. That is a fascinating little bit of trivia. I think it was Yuval Levin who pointed that out to me. Yeah. Um, 
Now, look, everybody knows the age of Bernie, uh, and I believe so. He will be he's seventy like nine. Yeah, yeah. No, but he'll, he's, apparently on, on inauguration day, whether he'll be seventy nine. Oh, jeez. I mean, he will he will be an octogenarian president if he will, he's elected. He will need to stay. You know how the in in Star Wars they have the back to tanks. Yeah, you, you know. Like, well, no, he'll need to stay in like a tank of uh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream <laughs> to stay young. Um, the milk is very moisturizing. Um, <laughs> if the millionaires, the billionaires, the big banks don't get to me. Um, <laughs> So, you know, uh, so, uh, I, I guess the other thing I noticed was that Elizabeth Warren, who you always think, oh, she's in her 60s. She just turned 70. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, Nancy Pelosi, 78, 79. Yeah, she's up know. there. Uh, now everybody's like, okay, she'll be like, you don't realize that, you know, within a few years, she's going to be 80. Yeah. You know. Um, Diane Feinstein is 87, 86, yeah. something like that. Um, but I so saw you went down the list. So, you know, that's the leader of the House. That's the leader of the Senate. That's the, the president. Chuck Schumer um, is the baby of the bunch right? you know, in his 60s. Bernie's up the, up in his 70s. Biden's up in his 70s. And Warren is 70, right? And so I think I think those were the six that I had. I'm not sure if there's anybody else. I mean, there are other members of the House and Senate you could point to who are also in their 70s. But these are all like, again, president, speaker of the House, uh, uh, Senate majority leader, Two of the prominent – former vice president, Democratic front runner. Yeah. Number two or number three you – know, number two in the Democratic field, number three in the Democratic field, uh, depending on how you rank them with uh, Sanders and Warren, all up in their 70s. And so there's some metaphor about like baby boomers who don't want to let go. Um, there's something to be said about maybe it takes you a whole lot of years to develop your name and your ID and your reputation in politics. Yeah. Um, yeah, to, to – so – I look. I old people are great. Uh, to quote SpongeBob, they're full of wisdom and experience. Uh, so uh, consider you were eleven in in oh four. Everybody's got, everybody's an old old person. Right, to right. You. But yeah. it is kind of it's got a. I was looking if for the like historical era when this was when our politics and even our culture more broadly were more dominated by really old people <laughs> than right now. The the most similar era that I could think of was the. Europe in the immediate aftermath of World War One, and then like basically all the way through. Well, that's good. That's reassuring. Yeah, all the way through to World War Two, um, <laughs> because yeah, exactly. But but the reason this happened is that um, World War One in Europe basically wiped out an entire generation of potential like the heads of state, and so all the way up until the lead of lead up to World War Two, you had these holdovers from like decades prior who just. In power, and this wasn't always a bad thing. One of these people was Winston Churchill. Yeah. It was ended up being kind of important. But the the weird thing about our period is that we've had it pretty good. There has been no cataclysmic global struggle uh, that America has suffered massive casualties from, yeah. and yet we have uh, leaders in our in culture and politics uh, who who just who are clinging to power. And the thing is. This would only happen if we let it happen. Like we, if if we stopped seeing, I don't know, Star Wars movies or Indiana Jones movies starring or made by people who are in their sixties or seventies, <laughs> it wouldn't be made anymore. Um, or if we stopped voting for like Joe Biden, the Joe Bidens of the world, like the Gen, Gen yeah. X, which has been sort of waiting, uh, yeah. to, very patient, patiently, uh, while holding. Well, the great irony is, not that long ago, you could say, you know, Pat, uh, Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House, and he was really young by most standard by yeah. historical he's standards. He's roughly your age, I think. Yeah, uh, which is to say, you know, yeah, really, the right, a normal age, a right age, young you know. for um, a politician. Yeah, um, certainly young for a Speaker of the House. Yeah. Yes. Um, trying to think of other examples. You know, look, there are you know other vo- certainly the, we've mentioned Boudet Edge and stuff like that. But I think what's interesting about this is that particularly for most of the presidential elections that I can remember growing up, they tried playing the, the age card against Reagan. And, you know, well, there you go again. You know, <laughs> I will not I, for I will political. Not make an, yeah, yeah, I will not make an issue of my opponent's age and inexperience. You know, as soon as he said that line, everybody was going to, okay, if he's that sharp to, to come up with that zinger, you know, right there, he's fine. Uh-huh. But, you know, you get to fast forward a little bit to George H.W. Bush versus Bill Clinton. And then Bill Clinton against Bob Dole, right? And the Democrats really enjoyed this idea of we are the voice of the new generation. They're the old, the tired, the calcified, you know, the past, we're the future, et cetera, et cetera. You have Bush versus uh, Gore, which is around the same age. Bush versus Kerry, where I don't think there was a significant enough age difference. And to, not even a significant you know. enough, like, graduate or uh, collegiate affiliation difference. Right, yeah, you know. Um, then you get Obama versus McCain, very strong. There was definitely this generational theme and, you know, old versus new, fresh versus, you know, tired, all, all kind of stuff. Um, age was less of an issue about Obama versus 
Romney, but there was still a sense of like Obama, you know, Romney was a man of the past and, you know, this Obama represents the future or something. There were a lot of reasons running, nominating Hillary Clinton was a mistake for the Democrats. But one of them was she wasn't the young, fresh face. She wasn't the voice of a new generation. She yeah, that wasn't, was Bernie you know, Sanders, obviously. <laughs> well, great. At least he was. At least he was new on the scene. That's true, right? You know, he was. He was new to, to. He was new to the audience, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and so now, you know, look, unless Kamala Harris makes some huge comeback or Pete Buttigieg turns his millions into some, you know, you know if if the Democratic nominee is uh, Biden, Sanders, or Warren. Then the nominee is going to be around the same age as Donald Trump, who is – isn't he now the oldest president at a point of election now because he was older than Reagan? I think so. I right? think that's I mean, true. And it's septuagenarian versus septuagenarian. <laughs> and that card that has worked very well for Democrats when it was Clinton and when it was Obama is off the table for him. Yep. So. I, I just look forward to – if look, if we get a Trump-Biden uh, 2020 election – there's going to be – like there was this instance – I may have mentioned this already, but uh, just after the uh, El Paso and Dayton shootings uh, that seemed like years ago based because of how news cycles work, mm. both Trump and Biden uh, misstated yeah. where they took place. So yep. First Trump did it and then Biden did it. So it was like – It's mutually assured destruction yeah, of gaffes. You know, there's no – yeah. You know. <laughs> If you want a gaff-free president, America, wait another four years. Uh, yeah, well, maybe one will come up eventually. Uh, but that's just—I I just wanted to note that's that's a weird curiosity of our moment that is is worth dwelling on because I I mm-hmm. I found it odd, and maybe just because I'm young that I noticed. Uh, is, you know, my suspicion is that the way the mind works is that we have like the equivalent of file cabinets. Yes, and you have a file cabinet that's called cities in Texas, and a fi- one file <laughs> cabinet is labeled cities in in Ohio. So you reach in, and you're hoping you reach out Dayton. But instead, we just, we just, it was in. It was in Dayton. It was in Dayton, and he picked was it uh, Toledo. Toledo, right? Yep. You know, three, you know, or, you know, or you know, Austin and uh, El Paso, right? And he reach, you reach out the wrong, and you pull out the wrong file, so to speak. Uh huh. It happens to all of us. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It doesn't mean you're, you know, losing your mind. Having said that, it does make it a little tough when you're, you know, it's the same thing when you can't think of somebody's name. You're like, oh, that guy. Um, um, you know, you, you can't communicate the point you're trying to get across. Yeah. Um. But yeah, Biden Biden thought that the the Dayton one happened in Michigan, yeah, which may just reflect an East Coaster's confusion about what mid, what the difference between Midwestern states. All are. those square states in the middle there. Yeah, yeah, some something I've encountered many times here as an Ohioan living on the East Coast is just like, oh, you're from uh, you're from Michigan, right? Like, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's close enough. Um, they don't understand it's like the Israelis and Palestinians it is, of yeah, college like, football. I'm, I'm, one yeah. Of, I'm one of the few people I I know of who who can like. Who is fine being mistaken as an Ohio, like being from one state and <laughs> the draw swords on it over you yeah know, like over. yeah that's very but um since I, I I said this was the last thing we were going to talk about but since I brought them up we might as well end by talking uh, sort of on a dour note I always like to leave people with a bad taste in their mouth on a podcast <laughs> uh, talking about uh, these these mass shootings that were now that are now almost ancient news, but they did happen. And there were several news cycles devoted to them. And just because they're out of the news doesn't mean that they're no yeah. longer relevant. And you've, you've written a lot about these. So I'm just going to like give you a platform sure. here as to why, what's what's wrong with the way right. we talk about them? What's Why are they happening? Are you worried about more of them happening in the future? Yeah. That, that kind of thing. Well, we should begin with the good news, uh, which is that I believe over the last couple of weeks, we've actually seen a lot of cases of people calling the cops and saying, hey, my son, my neighbor, this kid I know seems like he's really, you know, in trouble and has made threatening remarks in the past. Then uh, they found guys with guns in their basement and stuff like that. So there, you know, that old say, you know, there are a lot of times you're like, if you see, say, if you say, if you see something, say something. And we have cases where the authorities don't respond and the tragedy ensues. Uh, so maybe, you know, a combination of aware citizens and, you know, maybe we had a national epidemic of family members who were hoping it wasn't that bad. And in fact, it was that bad. Yeah. So we may be making some progress on that front. Um, it was funny because you know, I, so last time I was here, we were talking about the book, and I guess now that between two scorpions, between thank you, between two scorpions, <laughs> um, and I don't. Here's the thing: I don't want to sound like I'm saying, "Hey, buy my book." While we're talking about this terribly grim uh, topic here, but like, it, look, it's one of the things it's about is this fear of a you know for, hostile foreign force that basically looks at America's angry young people as a resource. And the question is, how do we get these people, and how do we how do we put them in a situation to do the most da- do do the most damage? A little bit of a spoiler alert, but you know it's been out for a couple months. So if if you weren't interested from the last conversation, I have a feeling this conversation you're, you're not going to be any more interested. <laughs> um, but you know, like 
I, you know, people saying, you know, well, you write about, write about what scares you, right? Well, this does scare me. This, this, you know, my kids go back to school next Monday. And look, I don't lay awake nights thinking about it, but you think, my God, what if it's my kid's school? You know, he's my, my older son is starting uh, middle school. Elementary schools, you don't hear about it too much. Sandy Hook, right? You know, but generally it's not the kid who's bringing the stuff. Yeah. Middle school, high school, you know, that's where it happened. Now you've got the, the thing that you, when, when the second one happened, El Paso was terrible. See another one in, in Ohio, and then you have this sense of, is this the signal? Is this the, you know, every nut, every, every angry young man sees this as, okay, this is it. Here comes the incel revolution. Here comes our time to rise and lash out and, and you know, send a message and all that stuff. Um, there's this, you know, there's, it's not with lack of research. There's amazing research that indicates there's a subculture online of people called Columbiners, people who are basically obsessed with the Columbine shootings. Oh, by the way, the Columbine shoot killers uh, in one of their journals or diaries said their original plan had been to hijack a plane – and crash it into New York City. I did not know that. Yeah, that's freaky. But it gets even freaker, freakier because that uh, they also wanted to exceed the death toll of Oklahoma City. It's like oh. every horrible terrorist attack and every horrible thing that's happened in our life has this weird psychological thread connecting itself to you know be inspiring the next. Yeah, one. it's a feedback loop of of evil. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, you know, the vast majority of school shooters since then have been thinking, have, have had a, an, a really unhealthy obsession with the Columbine school shootings. By the way, if your kid or if your neighbor or if somebody you know seems to be really focused on that, please be wary. Please contemplate, you know, calling an appropriate authority or something like that. Maybe it's nothing. But, you know, when somebody starts getting fixated on this, it turned into this, this script of somebody, if you're upset with life. Jack, you look like you were in high school only a few weeks ago. <laughs> if I um, shaved, it'd be even more. Yeah, you know, we all go through. You know, almost everybody has some horrible high school experience. Almost everybody has some experience with being bullied. Almost everybody has some experience of be, feeling like an outsider, like they don't belong. Like you know, what am I doing with my life? I'm a, I'm a you know, terrible self esteem issue. You know, all this stuff is very normal. What the Columbine killings kind of did was introduce this idea of this is a way you deal with it. Now it's a terrible way to deal with it. But seemingly to these guys, it seemed cathartic. And a whole bunch of angry young men since then have looked at that and said, oh, so that's what I do. That's how I, you know, and the really frightening thing, and I have a big beef with how the way the media covers these sorts of things, is, you know, when you're a kid, you feel like you don't matter. Nobody cares about you. Nobody cares about how, th how hard things are for you, what's going through your head. And then you do something like this. And the first thing the media asks is, what made him do it? Yeah. What was going through his head to make him do such a heinous act or something? Let's make this shooter a celebrity. Yeah. And, and not just a celebrity. Let's try to understand them. Now, on the one hand, I, you know, to do this in order to research, do criminologists need to look into this? Sure. But when you basically do, you know, like all of a sudden you know, the, we, we've basically said is you can be someone who feels like no one cares about you and no one cares about what you're thinking or what you're feeling and what, you know, then as soon as you start shooting people. Everybody cares about what you're thinking and what you're feeling and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Of course, by that point, you've done some terrible damage to people and torn apart a community and all that other kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, this is not the, the note I wanted to close things on. But, you know, like, well, you know, what keeps me up at night? This is what keeps me up at night. Yeah, it's, it's, it's worth writing about, but you have to be very yeah. – Also worth noting, I've never used the name of the killers. Yes, I've noticed you do that, and I've, I've tried to now avoid learning about them. Yeah. Although that – this Dayton one, I'm from Cincinnati, which is yeah. just uh, south of Dayton. So I, when these things are lo truly local news stories for me, I, I kind of can't avoid it and probably shouldn't uh, because they are these are now things that well, I have relatives in Dayton. Yeah. Like, I had to be concerned about them. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like I try not to learn too much about – because this is – again, this is the sort of perverse system that our media creates in that th these you, – you, as you mentioned, you, you become a celebrity by doing an awful thing. Um, and like you seem to matter, even if you don't see it at the time, you can, uh, this is what a lot of these people talk about on like 8chan and stuff is, is how that they will become like, uh, memorialized by doing this. And they, they're confident in this. Look, this, if particularly if you don't believe in immortality, you know, life beyond death, this is your door. This is your ticket to immortality. Yeah. This is the ticket to the immortality of always being discussed, always being remembered, not being anonymous. Actually, I realize I don't know if we're running, we're doing okay on time. Yeah. We're um, I'm going to do something I don't usually do when I'm in a situation like this. I have a half-formed thought. And I'm going to try to fully form it here. Okay. Wow. Right. This is this is happening live, everyone. Just All right. alert. 
this could be brilliant or this could be what on earth is Jim talking Maybe about? Maybe you should save this for the half baked, uh, half baked episode of. Yeah. This. Oh, there you go. All right. So here's the thing. So in American society, we're a very competitive society. We all we salute the best. We tell you, you know, do your best, be the best. The valedictorian gives the uh, the address at the graduation ceremony. The MVP, the, tor- yeah, the trophy for MVP. We we believe in celebrating the pinnacle of achievement. Uh huh. Most of us aren't going to do that. Most of us are not going to be the best in any particular group, in our in our class, amongst our peers, at our workplace. You know, there's nothing wrong with trying to strive. You can just name me, you know. Well, no, okay, okay, so you ran no you ran a you ran a marathon recently, right? Uh yeah, but the mar- so if you're asking me for the thing that I won, it was yeah. the Marine Corps ten K, not the marathon. Okay, the ten K, yeah. And you finished first place. Uh-huh. First of all, good for you. Thanks. You're you're the example. you're the exam- no. But like a lot for example, just finishing a marathon or finishing a ten K, like I couldn't do that, right? People look not at with me, that attitude. People look at me saying, Jim, you'd be lucky to do a 1K. Um, Fortunately, they're not seeing you right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he just sounds like he'd be short, short-winded after 10 <laughs> steps. Uh, th- so most of us in life are not going to be the champions. Most of us in life are not going to be these this status that we celebrate in life. Mm-hmm. You know, the best. The best of the best, as they say in Top Gun, right? Most of us are, you know, if we, if we try really hard, we can be pretty good. I am here now to say to everybody within who gets the chance to listen to this, it's okay to be pretty good. In fact, not just okay. It's really good to be pretty good. Most of us are not going to be grand champions. If you work hard at your job, if you're a good husband or wife, you take care of your kids, you're a good friend to other people, you're doing just fine. You're doing all that really I think that God ever wants out of your life and all that really anybody else has any right to expect of you. So I think, you know, and, and people talk about social media, the idea if you look at people's social media feeds, it's nothing but, you know, celebrations and vacations and their lives seem awesome and all that kind of stuff. It's all curated. Exactly. It's perfectly curated to show the very best moments of their life. Like when I'm depressed as all heck, you're not going to, you know, I'm not going to put pictures of that up. Um, and so I think we kind of need one to let people know it's okay if they don't feel like they're always winners, if they don't feel like they're always on top of the world, if they don't feel, you know, it's okay to feel like your life is just going, eh, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. You're perfectly normal. Um, you, there's no need to lash out. Life's not being unfair to you. Nothing's, you know, things are, you're, you're having the human experience. And the second thing is that if you try your best and you never are the champion, you never are the best of the best, that's all right. You're a good human being. And really, that's all anybody else should want you to be in this life. That's my that's my happy, you know, my Tony Robbins closing thought to, you know. That didn't sound half-formed to me. That's, all right, thank you. That sounded it's been fully the, formed. Okay, it's been in the back of my mind for a while. And that, I cannot think of a better way to close this episode. Um, so that'll be it, everyone. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank. Uh, please subscribe to us, as I've already said, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Follow the podcast at Jonah Remnant. I won't mention my own account again because that was already pretty blatant self-promotion. <laughs> Do it at the beginning before anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before anybody has the chance to stop listening. And uh, next week, things will be normal. Uh, J- Jonah will be back. Uh, there will be – you'll listen to him and you'll only hear me chime in occasionally to make fun of him or something. And I want to give a special thank you to Senator Ted Cruz for for pretend, for not only joining the show – but pretending to be someone else for the duration of, of it, and like flaw- not just not just impersonating his voice, but also his opinions. Like I just can't. This is this must have required years of method acting study. Jack, it is an honor not just to be here with you, but to to try to be the great Jim Garrity, um, who I, I've done great things in my life, Solicitor General, U.S. representing the great state of Texas in the U.S. Senate, almost winning the presidency or coming close beaten Beto. All these things are great, but, but imitating Jim is the great honor of my lifetime. Wow. Well, I'm, I am honored to have helped make that happen. Thank you very much. And until next time, goodbye. start this i always find starting to be the hardest part greeting listeners <laughs> listeners i'm not gonna do that that's his <laughs> trademark and i can't scream like he always does either because then i'll just have to edit that out myself later <laughs> might as well do things that are under my control while i can